Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode 14 of Push Dose EMS, brought to you by Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I am your host for today, Jeff Matcha. I am the Clinical Education and QA Manager uh, for OEM. Joining me today, uh, I've got a whole laundry list of folks that are going to join us on our discussion of topics today. Uh, starting with the usual suspects, uh, System Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, EMS Division Director, Dan Pojar. Welcome, Dan. Hey, Jeff and friends. Uh, Assistant Medical Director for Education, Dr. Matt Chin. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, QA Supervisor, uh, Linda Mattress. Welcome, Linda. Hi, everybody. Uh, Assistant Medical Director for QA, Dr. Tom Engel. Welcome, Dr. Engel. Hey, everyone. How y'all doing? And a couple new voices joining us this time. Uh, we have, starting this month, we have two new fellows joining us in the office. Uh, so I will first welcome uh, Dr. Nico Arendovich. Dr. Arendovich, hey. welcome. Hey, how are you guys? Welcome. Uh, take a chance just to tell us a little bit about yourself since this will be the real big first introduction for you to a lot of our system. Well, my name is Nico. I originally grew up in Chicago. I finished residency a few months ago at St. Louis at Washington University, where we had a pretty big EMS program where with St. Louis Fire. So pretty busy system there. Coming up here for some better training to work with you guys to learn a lot from you guys and hopefully be able to help out around the house. Thanks, Dr. Rendovich. And our other, we have two fellows this year. Uh, Second only in position on the podcast, and in no other way, uh, Dr. Brandon Drezich. Sorry. Nice work. Uh, that uh, welcome. You got it perfect uh, <laughs> the second time around. It's spelled uh, with I'm, a stutter, right? No problem. We're talking about stroke today. Um, I am Brandon Drezich. Nice to meet everyone. Uh, I also did medical school uh, in uh, uh, University of Minnesota and then did residency with Dr. Rendovich uh, at Washington University in St. Louis, originally from Delaware. Uh, happy to be here, happy to be working with all of you. I look forward to getting to know some of you out on the streets. Thanks, Dr. Drezich. Uh, welcome to both of you. It'll be a great year having you on board with us. And one further new voice uh, for our podcast uh, from our QA section, uh, Bill Soderbeck. Welcome, Bill. Thanks, Jeff. Hello, everybody. All right, and before we uh, start getting a little into our deep dive on strokes this month, uh, as usual, we'll turn it over to the division for some updates. So, Dan, anything from the system? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Just a couple items to keep it quick today because we got quite a few people on. Uh, so, you'll notice that the new Zoll X Series Advanced devices are being deployed. Um, now and over the next couple of weeks here, uh, these possess some of that new technology that we're going to use in that study that's coming up with the Medical College of Wisconsin, looking at some uh, resuscitation data. So uh, the devices at least are here, so that's progress. Uh, as far as starting the study, there's still a little bit of a timeline that needs to be worked out with the Medical College, so stay tuned for that. Uh, one other thing that we're going to look to start doing in the middle of August here is getting our EMS GAPS committee, so that's the guideline and policy subcommittee together to look at uh, any protocol changes that need to be made. And one major component of that is going to be the format of those protocols. So we would welcome any feedback 
from the system or if you're interested in joining the EMS GAPS committee, we welcome your participation in that as well. If you're interested, please email qualityems at milwaukeecountywi.gov or get in touch with your EMS liaison and they can reference you to our group and we'll get you situated in the seat that fits you best. Uh, also, we have openings on our research subcommittee, new product evaluation subcommittee, and also health equity. So if any of those are appetizing to you, feel free to join up with us. And finally, congrats to the Bucks. A uh, big win for the city and the area. Um, long time coming, I think, for a lot of folks. And uh, uh, really, I wanted to take an opportunity to shout out to the Milwaukee Fire Department. Uh, I know North Shore also participated. Engine 83 came down for game six, and the OEM core team was covering uh, the events as well. So we had quite a few patients over a couple of days there. So I just wanted to, to recognize the good work that was done there. Uh, if you're interested in joining our team, we do have paramedic and EMT openings. So check the county website for job postings and we'd be happy to have you on our team. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Dan. Uh, and that friendly reminder, along with uh, the Zoles coming out and some of the upcoming research studies that we have, uh, if you have not yet completed the human subjects protection training uh, in Target Solutions, please do so as soon as possible. Uh, your liaisons have the naughty list, so they should let you know if you're in need of that completion. Uh, that with the system, and now on to medical direction updates. Uh, Dr. Weston. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Hello again, everybody. Uh, just a few updates here. So one, uh, just again, welcome to our fellows, Dr. Rendovich and Drazik. Uh, we uh, we're excited to have two fellows this year. Uh, we have Dr. Grover still with us at the medical college. He has finished his fellowship and is working clinically at some of the freighter community hospitals. So congratulations to him as well. Uh, and as always, um, we'll do a quick yearly reminder of how the, the fellowship works. So these are folks who have finished their emergency medicine residency. Uh, so they've had the same emergency medicine training as the vast majority of emergency physicians that you'll find throughout the community um, when you bring a patient to the emergency department. They, however, have decided to do one additional year of training. So they work clinically uh, in the emergency departments in the community through Freighter. Uh, and then they also are doing this fellowship to get additional learning in EMS medical direction. So you will see them on meetings, you'll see them in the field, uh, and you'll see them all over the place. So please welcome them. And uh, they're both great. So that'll be good. Uh, number two, uh, just to echo Dan again, congratulations to the Bucks and a big congratulations and thank you to our core team, our fire departments, our law enforcement, uh, the city of Milwaukee uh, for a really successful uh, Bucks events from a, from a uh, EMS and, and perspective. So 100,000 people uh, outdoor at game six, which is just uh, quite, a, quite a load for our EMS system, but um, they did a great job, a lot of great planning and great execution going on there. Uh, number three, quick COVID update. So as you're probably hearing in the news, we are trending in the wrong direction uh, with regard to COVID. Every state now in the country has increasing cases. Um, Wisconsin has had a tripling in cases over the last two weeks. Here in Milwaukee County, similarly, we've had a tripling in cases over the last two weeks and our percent positivity has risen substantially. So be careful out there. Um, it's, it's largely due to the Delta variant, a far more contagious variant than what we've seen before. Um, and more likely it seems to land uh, a lot of folks, even young healthy folks in the hospital. So uh, the CDC yesterday recommended masking in areas with substantial or high 
disease transmission. Milwaukee County does have substantial disease transmission from that uh, definition. So strongly consider wearing masks when you're indoors uh, in public settings, grocery stores, other stores, uh, other public settings, things like that. Uh, and certainly if you haven't yet, uh, now is the time to get vaccinated. It's quick, it's easy, it's free, no matter where you get it. Um, if you have questions about the vaccine, feel free to, to reach out to me directly. Shoot me over an email, we'll talk through it. If you have questions or concerns about the vaccine, I'm more than help, happy to, to talk through those with you. Um, and then number four, uh, just another mention of engagement. Please uh, engage in your department, but also engage in your system. Uh, we have a number of different subcommittees you can engage in. Um, and also engagement can be submitting uh, questions to our education team, submitting questions to our medical directors um, and submitting uh, any sort of quality concerns to our QI process. So everybody hopefully has the app. MCEMS is the name of our uh, OEM app. Get it on your phone. And uh, if you click the contacts down at the bottom, you can get all those emails of folks to, to engage with, ask your questions, submit your QI cases. And that's what I got for today. Thanks so much. And I'll hand it back to you, Jeff. Terrific. Thanks, Dr. Wesson. Yeah, lots of things going on around the system. Um, glad we could all be here to kind of work through it together. And to echo Dr. Weston, any questions that you have, please feel free to send them in. Uh, we love them. Uh, we like making sure everyone's on the same page. With that being said, let's dive into the topic of the, of the day, which is strokes. Uh, we've seen a number lately come through uh, QI, and it's always just a very topical, uh, important discussion to have. And to help us really understand kind of what's happening in the body, uh, a little bit of the anatomy, physiology, pathophysiology of those strokes, uh, Dr. Chin. Hey, Jeff, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. And um, uh, yeah, we always like to make these topical. And as you mentioned there, uh, and as we'll kind of focus on the latter half of the presentation, Dr. Engel, um, our fellows and Bill will kind of talk about the, the QI portion of this, but certainly we like to make these relatable to some things that have come across their desks. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about stroke. So why do you care about stroke? Um, so really, you know, it's the number five cause of death, uh, you know, so the number five leading cause of death for all uh, people. So it's a, a very important kind of thing to consider. And, you know, I think everyone knows what a stroke is, generally speaking. So some sort of blood vessel in the, the brain is either blocked by a clot or a ruptures. So there's, you know, that leads you to basically two different types of strokes. Um, the bulk of the strokes that we're going to see are ischemic. So somewhere around 87% of strokes are ischemic strokes where there's that blockage uh, and the remainder are hemorrhagic. Um, we basically look at the, you know, look for strokes by these kind of syndromes. And it's based on what art, what, what artery or blood vessel is kind of affected in this uh, stroke. So we have kind of anterior circulation strokes, which are generally thought of as really affecting the middle cerebral artery or the anterior cerebral artery. We have some posterior circulation strokes where we think about the posterior cerebral artery, the brainstem, the cerebellum, those portions of the brain. And then there's some other kind of uh, assortment of strokes that may be pure motor or sensory strokes that are kind of lacunar uh, infarcts uh, in origin there. So those are kind of the, the big um, kind of subcategories of the different types of ischemic strokes there. And then obviously the hemorrhagic strokes um, can uh, have similar uh, vessels that are affected within there. 
Um, we just wanted to quickly define as well, like what is a TIA? Some people have probably heard about that, the transient ischemic attack. It's really just kind of a temporary blockage of blood flow. You can think of it kind of as a warning sign almost. Uh, and it actually is a pretty significant sign of potential future stroke. Um, so we know that about 15% of all strokes had a preceding TIA. So people who had the TIA uh, or who had a stroke had a, had a TIA about 15% of the time prior to that. And we know that in particular ischemic strokes, um, a large proportion of those had a TIA before that too. Um, even if you just had a TIA, that predictive, about a third of those people will have a more severe stroke in about a year. So just a, a word of warning that, you know, just because the symptoms are fleeting, um, certainly don't deserve to be dismissed and often can be uh, kind of predictive of future events. Uh, so these TIAs can often mimic um, stroke symptoms uh, that you would see from your uh, stroke scales, uh, but maybe transient and resolved by the time you get there. But again, warrant medical evaluation uh, and potential treatment as well. When we think about strokes and what you know, people can do for those things, there's two basic categories of risk factors for people that have strokes. They're very similar to cardiovascular risk factors, but um, they're divided into modifiable and unmodifiable risk factors. So your unmodifiable risk factors are easy to remember, right? So the older you are, the more likely you are to have a stroke. Um, family history, especially if somebody has a family history of stroke uh, before the age of 65, that's um, potentially a, a strong predictive factor for somebody, you know, a, a, a son or daughter having a stroke at an earlier age. Uh, race, gender. So we know that women actually have more strokes and, it, uh, and strokes have a higher mortality in women than men. Uh, and women tend to be a little bit older than men in, in terms of when they have their first stroke. And obviously, if you have a history of stroke, you're, you're at le you're in increased likelihood to have kind of future strokes. Things that people can modify, though, from a stroke risk factor standpoint. So hypertension. So making sure people take their medications. Um, so people with kind of unmanaged hypertension are going to be at increased risk. People who are smoking, our diabetic population, um, if you have a poor diet or physical inactivity, uh, often leading to obesity, those three things uh, will increase your risk for strokes. Uh, hyperlipidemia, again, we talked about coronary artery disease, peripheral arterial disease, both of those things will increase your risk for stroke. Um, atrial fibrillation, uh, you'll often see people anticoagulated because of their increased risk for strokes uh, if they have any history of atrial fibrillation. And then poorly managed sickle cell patients as well can have uh, an increased risk of stroke um, too. Um, so I know, uh, you know, that's uh, kind of just a basic background on kind of what we think about for stroke and what we're trying to address uh, and stuff. And so I'll turn it over to back to Jeff to kind of uh, turn it to our fellows for a little bit of some more uh, information. Thanks, Dr. Chin. Yeah, a, a lot of good thoughts there. Um, I think the manifestation of strokes uh, physiologically, I think we understand fairly well, but it's always nice to put it back on the uh, forefront of our brains and how those, uh, how a stroke manifests itself, uh, as far as signs and symptoms go, uh, is something that's been studied quite a bit and often leads to changes and updates on the way that we assess for and evaluate for strokes. Uh, so yes, over to our fellows, Dr. Drazic, Dr. Uh, Rendovich. Uh, to give us a little bit more deep dive on some of the tools that we have, uh, how those assessments would go, uh, and what we can kind of glean from some of those findings. So, doctors. Well, Jeff, I got to say, I'm a big fan of the pun you dropped in there. You said it was at the forefront of our brain. I couldn't go without making a comment about that. 
I'll also say, yeah, strokes are super hard. And as an ED doctor, it's actually one of my most difficult complaints to deal with. It's one of those things that it's so hard that a person would have to go through four years of training to become a neurologist and often another extra couple of years of training to become specialized, particularly in stroke. Now, the biggest thing about the stroke brain... Thank you, Dr. Rendovich, for demonstrating aphasia. So we today are going to focus on the basics of what you need to know to take care of these uh, patients well. Um, and first and foremost, just to recap, real clear, real basic, the basics of what a stroke is. We already mentioned uh, uh, earlier in today's podcast that there are two types of strokes. One of these is occlusion and one of these is a bleed. Dr. Rendovich? So when we think about the occlusive stroke, to simplify it, let's compare it to something that we're pretty good at. Consider the heart attack of the brain. Now, in most cases, we see these STEMIs, we get the EKG, we have a guy with chest pain, we're able to call it out pretty quickly. In this particular case, it's the STEMI of the brain. You have a portion that's getting blocked, but it's a lot more difficult to tell. Now, there's no quick test to verify this like a STEMI. There's no EKG, and usually they require truly something like an MRI, which can take 30, 45 minutes to get done, and is usually not done in the emergent setting. A CT scan, impossible to tell if the stroke is actively occurring, and if you see a stroke on a CT scan, that's a sign that it probably happened several hours ago because now you're seeing a part of a dead brain. So really, the diagnosis for the occlusive ischemic stroke is the clinical exam. Now, when it typically we look at hemorrhagic strokes or the big brain bleeds, these look a lot worse. That blood vessel somewhere like Dr. Chin mentioned ruptures, and now all these cells that are supposed to be getting blood in the brain start to starve and die, showing some of these clinical symptoms. To make it worse, that excessive bleeding can actually increase the pressure in the skull, and that's when we start to see herniations because there's nowhere else for it to go. Now, as I said, as an ED doctor, this is one of the bane of my existence. So we're gonna talk a little bit more about the hospital presentation. So just so you know why the stuff in the field matters, because it really does. I want you to know what's going through my head in the emergency department when someone comes in with symptoms that are potentially consistent with a stroke. This helps us look the upstream in the field to realize what things matter most um, and why it matters. There are really two basics of stroke treatment that are going through my mind. We're gonna start at the end, the treatment. What can we do about it for this patient? What can we do to potentially help treat a stroke to make someone's symptoms either go away or make them have a better long-term outcome after they've presented with a stroke. And it kind of comes down to the difference between these two types of strokes. If it is that occlusion, if it is that ischemic stroke, that heart attack of the brain where the blood supply is, caught, is uh, cut off maybe by a clot, you want to get that clot out of there. There are two ways of doing that. One of them, maybe you've seen people rushing to do this in the hospital uh, when you've brought a patient in, is a medication that you give through the IV called TPA that busts that clot throughout the entire um, uh, uh, bloodstream. The other one for the, those ischemic strokes, those clotted strokes, is thrombectomy. That's a way of either fishing out the clot with like a 
fishing hook that goes into the brain, more or less, through the blood vessels, or of delivering that medication specifically at that little area of that tiny blood vessel that is blocked off. The hemorrhagic strokes, the bleeding strokes, are a little bit more difficult to deal with. First thing that I do with those is I'd be really, really sad because the treatment options are much more uh, difficult and limited. But mainly there, we're looking to control the, the blood pressure so that the swelling in the brain, the bleeding of the brain doesn't continue. Um, and then we're potentially talking with our neurosurgery colleagues. So when they come through, when you guys call in with a concern for a stroke, those stroke codes get set off in a way that the CT scan gets done first. The reason this is done, as I said earlier, is not to look for a stroke, but it's to differentiate whether someone's bleeding in the head or not, because these are these two different uh, pathways Dr. Drasich talked about. The biggest thing that goes through my head when, it come, when these patients come in, is this a stroke or is this not? This part gets a lot more complicated, and this is, again, why some of the information you give us is great. There are certain things that are just stroke mimics, and sometimes this can show up as very low blood sugar. So a person whose brain is starving can actually show those similar pictures of not having a lot of blood in it. Some people can have atypical migraines. Sometimes these people will tell you ahead of time, I do have a history of migraines. Sometimes the side of my face goes numb or droops. Bell's palsy, which can usually be infectious. Or generalized altered mental status, which I'm sure you all have seen in the past, which doesn't really give a lot of information. The other one, which sometimes you might hear is recrudescence of a stroke symptom. This is a fancy way of saying that something else is causing previous stroke symptoms to come back. A lot of times these people can be septic or having urinary tract infections or having pneumonias that are causing these symptoms to, uh, to reappear. But in all these cases, we assume it's a stroke and, to, and we'll prove it otherwise, especially because time is of the essence. This is where you come in, right? These questions are going through our, our minds as soon as this patient hits the door, which is what's going on with this patient? Can I treat it? And we assume it's a stroke until, until proven otherwise, because we want to make that most critical, most timely diagnosis um, and focus on the other things later if it's not that. But this is where that importance of the proper information really comes into play. Why do we care so much about a last known normal? And I really specifically here wanna differentiate the last known normal from the symptom onset. These are two very, very different things in our heads, right? If a patient woke up, they say, I woke up at 9 a.m. I noticed I had these, these symptoms, including right-sided weakness and a facial droop. Well, that's not the last known normal, right? What we wanna know is, when they didn't have any of those stroke symptoms, which for that patient is going to be when they went to bed the night before. So that specifically lets us know is if we are potentially in a time frame where we can do some of these treatments, because if you are too late to give the, the medication that busts that clot, the TPA, um, then you just have to think about different, different ways of addressing the stroke. The other thing is, of course, if we're considering a clotted off stroke, and we're considering giving medication that potentially busts up clots, well, we wanna know if they're at risks, if we're gonna give them that medication of bleeding elsewhere. Is this gonna do something really, really bad if I'm gonna make them bleeding? Of course, if someone comes in and they're already bleeding from getting cut or something like that, well, that's really 
obvious, but we got to think about through things like their anticoagulation. Are they on things like warfarin or other blood thinner medications that are going to interact and put this person at a much higher risk? We think about things like the blood glucose, an easy test to really figure out is something else causing these symptoms? We can do that. We can, that's one thing that we don't have to wait that we can just get immediately there. And we think about blood pressure because for these medications that we're going to give them for these treatments, some of them need, need blood pressures to be in a certain range, or if the blood pressures are too high, we're worried about things getting worse a lot quicker. Now, the other thing about the time frame, this has become a little bit more relaxed because the timing for this is usually about 24 hours is the thrombectomy. So this is that fish hook that kind of goes to pull these clots out in your brain. When you think about thrombectomy, when you think about when you hear the term large vessel occlusions, this is why you should be thinking about the cath lab activation for the brain. Taking it back to our STEMI perspective, when you guys call a STEMI in the field, it usually activates a cath lab for an interventional cardiologist to place a stent. In the same way, the importance of getting to the right location is knowing that this is a cath lab activation for the stroke. Now, some, for, the, for some of the old fogies out there who noticed that this came crashing the scene within the last five years, kudos to you for recognizing that all of a sudden we started changing our standards and practices. After a landmark paper came out, it showed that there was actually significantly better improvements if there was a large vessel occlusion and they were able to fish this clot out. So now we're all really pro-thrombectomy and not a lot of places have that yet. In this sense, summarizing a lot of the management here, I'd wanna talk a little bit about sensitivity of testing. This is really nerding out. So if you wanna close your brain off for a few seconds, I'll try to keep this very brief and not too nerdy. But the goal of all pre-hospital work for what you guys do, especially given the time sensitive nature of certain diseases, it's better to overcall and let the hospital determine what's more important and, uh, with more and give the hospital more time and determine what resources are needed. So if there's ever a consideration for that you're sitting and you're thinking, hey, I think this person might be having a stroke, it's better to call it first. So now we'll talk a little bit more about the screening tests that we use here in order to help determine whether a person's having a stroke or not. And again, this is why all this stuff matters, right? We wanna screen because we want to assume everything is a stroke so we can potentially treat it. So. Now's the time to start really paying attention here. You know, there are a number of different tests out there to screen for strokes in the pre-hospital setting. The big thing that we need to keep in mind is we are going to assume it's a stroke until proven otherwise. We're going to use a sensitive test, something that is going to pick up hopefully all of the things that might be strokes so we can activate, we can potentially do something about it until proven otherwise. So. You know, in our system, we think about BFAST, we think about LVO. If you've come from other systems, there are other things out there. Um, there are a whole bunch of different things that are used in different places. Um, but the important thing here is a regular, a well-organized approach that we use to screen for these symptoms. So let's first talk, talk about the BFAST. So BFAST, solid acronym we have here. In general, they help us relate to different parts of the brain. B, balance. This hits a couple different things. You heard Dr. Chin talk a little bit about the anterior circulation, maybe about the cerebellar aspects of it. 
But think about balance being associated with your cerebellum, your rat brain. Someone who all of a sudden immediately started having difficulty walking, those can be very concerning for one of those two primary issues. E. Lost my spot here. <laughs> Trouble seeing. Eyes can be associated with su sudden onset blindness. Now, for some of these are a little bit more subtle. Some people will say, hey, you know, I just all of a sudden had a sudden loss of vision in my right eye. Sometimes these can be associated with retinal artery occlusions. And sometimes people can show up with something saying, hey, all of a sudden I'm having double vision right now. And these can be associated with what they call cortical or pontine strokes. F stands for face. This is where we get concerned about facial droop. This is actually associated with your middle cerebral artery circulation. And then A stands for arm. So all the stuff we've all learned about, oh, is their arm droop. This is also associated with that same middle cerebral artery circulation. S is speech. This is where we start to talk about aphasia. This is my example from earlier. Not necessarily associated with a difficulty speaking as it is a difficulty finding the word. I want you to think about this as such. You ever get stuck in a position where you can't think of the word and it's kind of frustrating? And imagine that's every single word that's coming out of your mouth. That is kind of how aphasia is defined. They cannot come up with the right words. It is without speech. This is actually associated with the Broca's area of your brain, which is also associated with that mineral cerebral artery circulation. T. These are your terrible headaches. These are where we get concerned about the bleed strokes. So these can be your subarachnoid hemorrhages. These can be an aneurysm which ruptured somewhere, et cetera. So B fast, B balance, E eyes, F face, A arm, S speech, and T terrible headache. Now we move on from there to our screening for those big bad strokes, the LVO. So BFAST, LVO. Let's go through those two. S, speaking difficulty. And Dr. Arenovich did a really good uh, job covering here. There are two types of speaking difficulties with, with strokes. There's aphasia, which is difficulty producing speech or comprehending. You know, think of this as a little bit of a mixed up wiring up there that is just not uh, allowing everything to be formed correctly. There's dysarthria, which is more of a mechanical difficulty. That's slurred speech. Those are actually two separate things. So that that uh, you know, speaking difficulty um, is you know what what you do, Dr. Arendovich. What would you use to uh, screen for that? So if you guys look in your protocols, you can see there's the sentence: "You can't teach an old dog new tricks." When we think about the aphasia in the setting of a large vessel occlusion, it would come out something more of like a you. Dog tricks versus something more that sounds like we care more about the aphasia in this case. The next aspect that we're going to talk about is neglect. So what this really means is this is truly a very difficult aspect to comprehend because essentially that brain is saying, I'm not going to focus on one side of my body. In fact, that part of my body might not exist. We evaluate this by say, seeing if the patient can only feel one side when you touch both sides. So you can only feel one side when you touch the patient's right hand, left hand, and both hands. And this is slightly different from just a sensory deficit on one side because you'll start to see people ignoring it. 
When we would work up in the neuro ICU during our residency, you'd be amazed when these got really bad that you can put a patient's hand in front of their face and they will not recognize that that's actually their hand. This is that, as this is that aspect of neglect. And then O is this ocular deviation, right? Both eyes deviating, uh, looking in one side and patient maybe not being able to cross to the other side. And those are your signs of those big strokes. And this is why it matters in our system. It changes where you think about destination, right? LVO with the speaking difficulty, the neglect and the ocular deviation um, changes things in terms of patient management and what could possibly be done for them in terms of treatment. So in our system here, if they are LVO positive, they go to the closest comprehensive stroke center if it is available there because they need to be at a place that is potentially capable of fishing out that clot. If they are LVO positive, that clot is potentially bigger and potentially can be something that can be retrieved by that fishing method that the interventionalist can do. If they are negative, they still could be having a stroke. It still could be a pretty bad one, um, but we just get them to the closest primary or comprehensive stroke center um, because the first and foremost treatment for that is going to be the clot busting medication, TPA. So some other pearls that you can find in your OEM standards of care manual are the timing for these. In general, we like these code strokes to get to the hospital in less than 10 minutes and limit your scene time as much as possible. And this is again, because of the three to four and a half hour time frame of giving the TPA. So we just wanna summarize the big things about your screening evaluations for strokes. Remember, be fast for any stroke, balance, eyesight, facial droop, arm weakness, speech issues, or a terrible headache, and of course your LVO, which is your snow, speaking difficulty, primarily the aphasia, N, which is neglect, and O, which is the ocular deviation. Thanks so much for your work out there in the field. Just know what you do out there matters, and thank you for taking care of these patients. We're looking forward to working with you guys. Thanks, Docs. And uh, again, welcome to the team. A lot of great information there. Uh, some really good reminders for some <clears throat> folks to focus on during their stroke assessments. And you two can rest assured, I will never disappoint with the puns. They're there for you as needed. Uh, with all that information in mind, uh, especially with the assessments, uh, transport destination decisions, uh, strokes along with uh, STEMIs are one of our major QI focus areas. And to dig a little bit more into some of those QI concerns, uh, Dr. Engel, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. So I'm going to try to run through a couple of the things that we know from the, the QA, QI perspective on stroke. So, you know, over the last six, seven months, we've really been focusing hard on trying to identify ways that we can improve our system management for strokes. And one of the ways we've been doing that is getting some of our hospitals to submit cases where, you know, unfortunately we don't pick up on the stroke in the pre-hospital setting. Um, and we're not doing this to try to nail anybody and, you know, say, oh, look at what you missed. We're really doing this to try to understand um, where our system is set is not set up for success. And the first thing I've noticed after looking at all this is, once again, strokes are super difficult. So this is just a truly difficult diagnosis to start with. But you know what, after reviewing a lot of these cases, uh, I think I have five key points uh, 
with the data right now that can be utilized for our system. So the first key point for improving our recognition and diagnosis of strokes in the pre-hospital setting is documentation. Um, what we tend to find in uh, you know, chart reviews of stroke cases where providers identify the stroke and activate a stroke code prior to uh, hospital arrival are, they tend to document a little bit better. They tend to uh, document longer narratives that include exactly um, what portion uh, of the physical exam or the patient complaint findings are cluing the, the crew into uh, the diagnosis of a stroke. They tend to be documenting the exact portions of the BFAS that are either positive or negative, as well as the LVO exam that are either positive or negative. They tend to document multiple vital signs and then also a physical exam portion that's outside of the narrative. Um, and you know, I can't always say that documentation exactly mirrors clinical care, um, but you can kind of think about it that if somebody's being really diligent in documentation, um, they're probably being more diligent in the physical exam and the history taking of patients. And because strokes are such a difficult diagnosis to make, you have to be extraordinarily diligent and very careful during your history and physical exam portions of these patients to identify the common themes or common findings in a stroke because they're often very, very subtle. So the first portion is, you know what, we do better when we document better. Now, the second thing I'm going to move into is, you know, the overall clinical presentation that tends to be missed by a lot of crew members um, that we see in these missed stroke cases. And I think the one of the big ones that we tend to miss are patients who initially complain of unilateral findings. Uh, Dr. Chin talked to you about the pathophysiology of strokes, um, and they tend to be in single blood vessels. Um, and those single blood vessels control one part of the brain, which typically means that the patient's going to present with a typically a unilateral finding, something on one side of their body. Now, there are some other portions of stroke, you know, where they're, they're affecting part of the brainstem where they may not have exact unilateral findings, but a lot of unilateral findings have to clue you into the possibility of a stroke. Now, I'm not saying all findings on one side of the body are always a stroke. What I'm saying is when you see that in the initial patient presentation or when you see something on one side of the body in your physical exam and history, you need to stop and do a very careful history and physical exam to try to identify other findings in the BFAST or the LVO exam that would indicate a stroke. So findings on one side of the body need to clue you into, hey, this could possibly be a stroke. That's one of the more common things we see um, where providers will often then miss the or not identify the other causes of stroke, which is odd because, you know, typically unilateral findings are concerning for stroke. The third thing we kind of see with the BFAST exam is the most commonly missed or difficult to diagnose portion of the BFAST tends to be the balance portion. Now, I kind of get this, you know, patients are, are not often like ambulatory with you. You're getting them up out of their bed. You, sometimes they're sitting in a chair and you're moving them directly to the cot. Um, but the balance portion, really, uh, you got to do a great, a good job of trying to examine the person for balance, and then also get a history that can elicit problems with balance. And often we see patients who either fell that day and now they could have fallen because they had a balance problem. We see people that have multiple falls um, in the previous week. They're often complaining of weakness, sometimes dizziness, vertigo, lightheadedness, unsteady on their feet, or their family will say they haven't been walking right for a couple of days. So I think getting that history of a balance problem should really clue you in to a good physical exam for balance. 
Um, and you can also, you know, you can do a physical exam for balance with them, even sitting up in bed. A lot of times patients, if they're sitting up in bed and you can't walk them for another reason, they won't be as steady just sitting up there and they'll kind of wobble and wave. And, and wave. So really focus down on the, on the history findings that can indicate a balance problem that would allow you to do a really close exam for balance. The first, the fourth thing in the LVO exam um, is the aphasia portion. I think our fellows really hit hard on trying to tell you exactly how to differentiate um, dysarthria and dysphagia um, and exactly what it would sound like, but I'm sorry, dysarthria and aphasia. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, the aphasia can be sometimes really difficult to pick up. And a lot of the things that we often see for the missed aphasia are patients, uh, crews will document patients who are just not participating in an exam or not wanting to talk to them. Um, patients who are just silent, sleeping, have altered mental status, or who are able to respond to the question, but are very slow to respond. And I think if you remember, we talked about uh, aphasia being receptive. They can't understand um, the words coming into their brain, and it can also be expressive. They can't understand the words going out. So those are some of the common findings we, we identify in chart review of patients who you know, end up being LVO positive with their diagnosis in the hospital of aphasia, but the crews you know, attribute it to another cause. So always double check when you're thinking that a patient is just you know, not participatory or you know, uh, silent during your exam or just slow to respond, that very well could be aphasia and an LVO positive sign. Now the last one, uh, number five would be confounders. When looking through these charts, we often see that uh, patients are have drug or alcohol use attributed to the findings that are positive in the BFAST exam. For, and unfortunately, you know, a lot of their patients use drugs or alcohol. Um, so it can be definitely difficult to pick up on uh, patients who have strokes. And often our patients are intoxicated um, and have a stroke at the same time. So it can be very, very difficult to identify these people. But, you know, when you have somebody who maybe uses drugs or alcohol and you have findings of them, you know, maybe being sleepy or altered, they're not walking. Well, they're just not walking because they're drunk or uh, they're having weakness and they're just weak because, you know, they've been using drugs or alcohol. You got to remember those things can, can be an underlying sign of a stroke. So, you know, uh, just having one diagnosis of alcohol intoxication doesn't mean you can't always have a stroke at the same time. So you have to be really diligent and you know what, always err on the side of caution. If you have somebody who, you know, you think was drinking a little bit, but has a positive BFAST, I'd go ahead and activate that as a stroke unless you, you have another great reason not to. So in summary, we've identified five key things right now with the data we have for strokes. First being improved documentation seems to lead to the correct diagnosis of a stroke. Um, unilateral findings need to clue you in on, uh, identify, on good history and physical exam for identifying a stroke. The balance portion of the BFAS can be the hardest, but utilize history findings to clue you in for a good diagnosis or for a good physical exam. The aphasia portion is often attributed to other causes. So make sure you're not, you know, attributing aphasia to somebody just not talking to you. And the last one is confounders. Remember that people can use alcohol and drugs and also have a stroke at the same time. So remember to not always chalk it up to that. With that, um, I'm just going to recommend that you always use your tools uh, section on the OEM app for helping you identify stroke as there's really nice, uh, you know, helpful BFAST portion and LVO portion on there that can allow you to quickly walk through this exam safely in the field. I'm going to turn it over to uh, Jeff, and we're going to be talking uh, with Bills with some of our stroke KPIs. Thanks, everybody.
Thanks, Dr. Engel. Uh, sound like a broken record today, but a lot of good information. Um, some nice deep dive into what we're actually seeing out in the field. Uh, and on that topic, uh, we're going to welcome Bill Sauter back in uh, to talk about some of the KPIs, those key performance indicators that we watch uh, here in the county and where a lot of the uh, efforts are put by our QA team when it comes to strokes. Uh, a lot of this information is monthly uh, shared with the EMS liaisons, uh, but we thought it'd be really great for all those field level providers to really understand uh, what we're looking at and uh, areas that we've been focused on, room for improvement and where we're doing really well. So, uh, Bill, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. So like Jeff said, every month we go over key performance indicators that help us evaluate our performance as a system in our treatment for our stroke patients. So what I'm gonna do here today is go over those KPIs, the key performance indicators, give kind of a rationale behind why they were chosen, they're not just arbitrary, and then look at our performance on the year-to-date basis. So let's go down our KPIs that we, re we review on a monthly basis. So the first one is our accuracy. So looking at our, looking at our code stroke activations, one of the KPIs is to have 80% of our stroke activations actually be confirmed strokes at the hospital. And the rationale behind this is the sensitivity uh, identifies patients meeting the criteria. So basically, this reduces system fatigue in identifying as many stroke patients as accurately as possible. So the way I look at it as in a perfect world, we'd love to throw out a net and capture every single stroke patient and no other patients. So looking at our performance on a year to date, we're throwing out that net and we're capturing 51% of our patients accurately are confirmed strokes, 49% are other mimics. So when we look at that performance uh, historically, I'd just like to share an, in an interesting piece of data. Back in 2015, looking at the same metric, looking at this, we had about the same accuracy. 51% of our stroke alerts were confirmed stroke by the hospitals, but our net now is significantly bigger. So we used to send out 41 stroke alerts a month in 2015, now we're sending out 90 a month. So that's approximately 50 more per month. With 50%, 51% accuracy, that's 25 more CVAs that were caught early and treated early because of the diligence and the new tools that we're using now. And that's impactful and that's really changing lives and, and creating better outcomes. So year to date, we are 51% in accuracy confirmed strokes when we sound on our stroke alerts. But we're casting a much, much broader net than we've cast in the past. The next KPI is our blood glucose. So looking at this, what we want to do is make sure that we, at, we attain, we obtain a blood glucose in 95% of our patients that are being activated as a code stroke. So like, the, like mentioned before, hypoglycemia is one of the mimics of stroke. And this is one of the easiest mimics that we can rule out in the field. So Obviously, obtaining a blood glucose would be one of the easiest things that we could do to eliminate, eliminate that mimic of hypoglycemia. And also, obviously, delayed, uh, delayed diagnosis of hypoglycemia uh, impacts the morbidity for that patient. So if you have a patient that is hypoglycemic, their outcome is going to be worse 
um, if you're not checking that and treating that. And it's one of the easiest things to check and, and correct fairly quickly. So looking at that, we do a great job. 100% of our patients that were stroke alerts had a documented, documented in the PCR uh, blood glucose, which is terrific. Uh, next one is our actually utilizing our tools like the fellows were talking about, our BFAS and LVO tools. So looking at this one, uh, use of a validated assessment tool improves our sensitivity. So we're gonna get uh, a higher rate of confirmed strokes returned from the hospital if we're utilizing our tool. We're not just going on a gut feeling, we're using our validated tool, our BFAST assessment tool. And 99.8% of the time we're utilizing that tool undocumented. So that's great. And the, the very infrequent times that we're, we don't, that's for patients that are typically unresponsive. And it looks like because of patient presentation with high blood pressure or previous strokes, the uh, uh, paramedics were trying to advocate for that patient. But remember, we have to perform that diagnosis or that assessment before we come up with a diagnosis and send out that stroke alert. We're doing a great job. 99.8% of the time we're using that tool. So great job with that. Our next one is um, obtaining a last known well time. So looking at that, we're, we want to obtain that in 95% of our stroke alert patients. So our rationale behind this is it helps us, uh, helps the hospital establish eligibility for reperfusion strategies. So the last known well time is a critical piece of information that's essential for the hospitals to determine uh, what, what, what intervention they're going to use because there is a closing window on the different types of interventions they can use. So they can go out to approximately 4.5 hours for TPA and approximately 24 hours for a thrombectomy like, like the fellows talked about. So anchoring the last known well time is essential for that hospital to develop their strategy to determine uh, what this patient is eligible to receive. We're doing a really good time and a uh, really good job with that. And I'd like to just say that this is a collaborative effort with our field providers and with our communicators. So our field providers um, have to get that piece of information and they have to make sure um, uh, this is given to the communicator and the communicators quite often um, will elicit this piece of information from our providers and make sure that it's in that stroke page. So we're doing a great job. 97.9% .9 of our stroke alerts have a documented last known well time. So great job by both the providers and uh, the communicators. Our next KPI is our activation. So our providers should activate a code stroke within 10 minutes of diagnostic criteria. So looking at this one, we don't specifically have an anchor for a time that the assessment was performed. So what we put in there temporarily right now is what we'd like to do is alert as early as possible. So what we're looking at now is alerting prior to transport. So what we want to do is when you have a positive stroke assessment, that positive BFAS assessment, get that stroke alert out as quickly as possible. So the rationale behind that is early notification of stroke centers reduce first medical contact to reperfusion time. So basically what that means is hospitals can begin parallel operations. So when you send out that stroke alert early, they can clear that CT table, um, notify the neuro provider to be available and possibly respond down to the emergency room, uh, notify a pharmacy for the possibility of drawing up TPA, and they can do all of that while you're still on the scene or transporting 
rather than when you arrive at the hospital, which is um, delaying that, that intervention for that patient. So we wanna get that alert out as quickly as possible. So this is one of the, the KPIs that we probably have the best opportunity to, to improve on. So looking at our year-to-date data, only 53.4% of the time do we alert, send out that stroke alert prior to leaving the scene. So that's something that we can do a little bit better that can be impactful on the patient's interventions and their outcomes. So being more efficient and getting reperfusion quicker. So looking at also one of those time is critical, time is tissue um, KPIs, um, looking at our scene time. So our scene time, what we have for a KPI is 15 minutes or less for 75% of all of our code stroke patients. So like the fellows were saying, um, time is critical and time is brain. It's like 1.9 million brain cells per minute um, are destroyed during a, a larger stroke. Um, there's a lot of different mimics out there and presentation can be vague and amb ambiguous, but time is critical. So perform that stroke assessment early and be as efficient as possible um, when you're on the scene to get uh, your scene time down to 15 minutes or less. So looking at that, this year, year to date, 68.5% of the time we have a scene time of 15 minutes or less. So the one good, uh, one good little piece of news is that last month was the first month historically since we're, we're covering this that we actually were above the 75% goal. So we are trending in the right direction. So that's great. And then our last KPI is that EMS will deliver patients to the most appropriate stroke center. So making sure that all of our code stroke patients go to our stroke hospitals, whether they're primary or comprehensive care centers. Obviously, if it's an LBO, they need to go to the comprehensive care centers. And delivering our patients to the right hospital is something we're very good at. Also, 100% of the time, they're delivered to uh, stroke hospitals appropriately. And that's our monthly KPIs that we look at for strokes. And I just want to make you uh, known to you that if you have any questions with stroke KPIs or even STEMI KPIs, feel free to give me a call or email me and I'd be happy to talk about any questions you have. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Uh, nice rounded out update there on things that we're really looking at uh, to help our system really be proactive and efficient in treating for and identifying strokes. Uh, with that, I will thank everybody for joining us today. Uh, it was a really great group. Uh, a welcome again to our new fellows, and we look forward to this year working with both of you. I thank all of you for taking the time out to listen, and we will see you next month. Thanks. Stay safe.